Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Director, screenwriter, producer, instructor, all describe Tanzanian-American Ekwa Musangi, my guest today. Her latest project and first feature, the award-winning and critically acclaimed Farewell Amour, tells the story of an Angolan immigrant who, after a 17-year separation from his family, is joined in the States by his wife and teenage daughter. Now, however, they're perfect strangers who find themselves sharing a one-bedroom in Brooklyn as they struggle to reconnect. I saw the film, and let me say, it's terrific. A child of immigrants, Equa was born in Oakland, California, but when she was five, they moved to Kenya, which happens to be where she is based, although Equa divides her time between Africa and the U.S., Ekwa has also written and directed several shorts, including the award-winning comedy Soko Sanko, as well as several drama series for mainstream broadcasters in Kenya and South Africa. She was selected for the 2012 Focus Features Africa First program and the 2016 Berlin Talent Campus. Her first web series, All My Friends Are Married, received rave reviews. Equa's been an adjunct faculty member at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts and is currently the resident educational instructor with the African Film Festival. She teaches screenwriting three at the New School in Manhattan and short film screenwriting at Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema at Brooklyn College. So let's meet and get to know Equa Mosangi. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely from Kenya today. I can't believe it. (laughs) So happy to be here. Thank you, Sandy. (laughs) I always like to start way back when. So Mm -hmm. here you are. You live in Oakland. You're five years old. And why did your parents leave? They were done with school. They had been in the States for, I believe, 12 years, um, you know, studying. They did multiple degrees and had me. Um, And they had just finished. My dad graduated with his PhD. My mom had her master's. Um, My eldest brother had finished high school and it was it was time to go. And I do remember my father. He was very adamant about wanting me to know Africa. Um, And so not wanting, you know, if he had the chance to wanting to be able to raise me on the continent. My two brothers, I have two older brothers, had left when they were very young. So they actually were raised in the U.S. Um, But he wanted me to be able to have Africa. And so they were excited to move back in the mid 80s um, to start their lives and for me to be able to have that experience as well. And why Kenya? In the 60s, there was the first East Africa Union. Um, It dissolved at some point, and then there's now another one. But in the first East Africa Union, Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania divvied up the higher educational institutions. So the medical school was in this country, the law school was in that country, the blah, blah, blah school was in the other country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so the art school was in Nairobi, was in Kenya, and my father was an artist. And so he was assigned to come and teach for the East Africa, basically East Africa University, and was therefore based in Kenya. You say your father was an artist. Was he a painter? Was he a sculptor? Mm -hmm. He was a painter. He was a graphic designer and a painter. And your mom? My mom, her focus was in early childhood education um, and sort of like home sciences. So she she studied all of that 
you know, she was a teacher. By the time they came to the U.S., she was a teacher. And then she went to school at Mills College um, mm-hmm. and then eventually Stanford um, and studied early childhood education and then came back and um, and worked in education in Kenya as well um, and also taught at the university level. So what was your connection to the U.S. as you got older? And when did you leave Kenya? So... I'm the only one in my family who was born in the U.S., so I always anticipated that I would go to school in the U.S. So you had dual Um, citizenship. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was just kind of this place that I'd eventually return to at some point was, you know, growing up is that was what I knew. But my parents were very deliberate about me, like being a part of the community growing up in Africa. Um, and I say Africa because it was, you know, we were in Kenya, but my family's from Tanzania, which is right next door. Um, so, you know, both places are my home. Um, and so it wasn't until the end of high school that, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to study film. There were no film schools, um, in Kenya. Um, And at that point, I don't even know that there were really film schools on the continent that anyone went to, but it made sense for me to go to film school in the U.S. And so my two brothers were both living in the U.S. at that point. So I came back um, at the end of the 97, I believe, to do my last year of high school and then go to college. Which was where? Where'd you go to school? I went to NYU. Now, did you go to Tisch, Tisch School of the Arts? Yes, exactly. Well, we have that in common. Um, oh. I'm a lot older than you are, but I got a BFA from NYU oh, so way back in the day. Oh, my God. And as a matter of fact, you know who was in my TV class? Billy Tell Crystal. Really? <laughs> wow. Yes. <laughs> That's my big claim to fame. When oh. you came back to mm-hmm. the States after all these years, your mm-hmm. brothers were not located on the East Coast, were they? No, they were on the West Coast. So my parents, you know, since that's where my parents had been based all that time, my eldest brother had, by the time we came back to Kenya, my eldest brother had finished high school. So he stayed on the West Coast. Um, And I went to join them on the West Coast initially. And I just didn't love it. Uh (laughs) I didn't love the experience of being there. And I think a lot of it really had to do with just like culture shock. I felt like a lot of the young people that I met had no idea who I was, like meaning had no concept of Africa, let alone right. East Africa. Like who mm-hmm. you speak English, what's happening here. Like, right. you, oh God. you know, and uh-huh. also because so you know, a real anomaly. Yeah, you know, East Africa is kind of old school. Like there's certain people, like if you were part of the Peace Corps or you were part of the, you know, Black Panthers or, you know, certain sort of Pan-Africanist movements from like the 60s and 70s, people are familiar with certain aspects of East Africa, with Tanzania, with, you know, President Nyerere, with the Mao Mao, with Mount Kilimanjaro, with, you know, certain things that you can kind of name but a lot of sort of contemporary um, information or sort of like thinking about Africa has to do with West Africa because of the Atlantic slave trade. You know, so people, younger people who've visited Africa a lot have gone to 
at least at that time, you know, this is, I'm talking about the nineties, right? Yeah. At that time, a lot of people had traveled to West Africa, maybe had taken part in some West African dancing classes or things like that. West Africa is very, very different um, as far as just culture and, you know, how how we're raised. Um, and so nobody understood me. And I found that really puzzling because I grew up learning so much about the U.S. and yeah. American uh-huh. life. And it was just like, what do you mean you don't know anything? <laughs> like, yeah. of course I speak English. Who are you people? Yeah. Um, and so when I, you know, I went to like a very British school system. Um, it's very, it's like huge, highly disciplined. I ended up back in the Bay Area, you know, and I was taking all these experimental classes from Stanford that were like, let's just talk about it. Let's just feel it out. And I was like, what is this? (laughs) Yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I was just like, listen, I'm out of here. I got to get out of here. Bye. Bye. (laughs) And so when I left California, I literally was like, I'm never coming back. This is it. You will never see me again. And it literally was 10 or 11 years before I even visited I did visit New York when I was thinking about film schools because, of course, everyone's like, oh, film school, you're going to L.A. Right, right, um, right. And I kind of, uh, part of it was trying to avoid a lot of the kids that I went to school with just because I just felt like, again, like I just came from like a really sort of like discipline, like, you know, everyone was like really mature. By the time you were 17, you had figured life out. And that was not what I kind of met. So I was like, I want nothing to do with these people. Um, and also LA just seemed so like easy breezy. And I just thought to myself, I will never go to school. Like I'll never go to class. I will be on the beach. This is a terrible idea. I need to go somewhere where, you know, like that I'd have some discipline. I'd be forced to have some discipline, um, which is New York. And it's much more neurotic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I came from a city too. Yeah. That was the other yeah. thing too. Like everyone, you know, cause I, a lot of the parents really loved me and they were so terrified that I was going to New York and they were like, are you going to make it? They'll kill you. They'll leave <laughs> you alive. And I was like, no, I, I lived in a city. Nairobi is a, a bustling city. Right. Um, and in that time, the Bay area was this like sleepy little town that I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. So yeah. it's like, Bye. See you people later. I'm never coming back. Um, and so I loved New York. I loved the diversity. The diversity that was there just was so much broader. You know, there were just so many more Black people from the diaspora, from the Caribbean, from, you know, French speakers, right. Dutch speakers, and just all of these, you know, like a whole variety of Latin American folks and that I just really just kind of swallowed up. And Spike Lee was the one black filmmaker that I'd ever heard of. And he went to NYU. So I was like, great, I'm going to NYU. The end. Um, And that's literally how I made my choice to go to NYU. So for you, it turned out to be very much of a natural fit. Yes. Okay. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Little hesitancy there. (laughs) That was the initial, you know, sort of like the yay. I'm here. Yeah, you were high. Right. (laughs) <laughs> and then I realized that the people in New York didn't know who I was either. Um, and <laughs> because, you know, here I was and I'm telling all these stories about Africans, contemporary stories about Africans that at that time, you know, this is pre-digital age. No one had ever seen these things that I was talking about. And so they were just like, who are these people that you're, you know, like, 
who, <laughs> what people are these? Um, and I literally would get that kind of feedback from my peers and from my teachers who were just very confused about the stories I was telling and why. And, and I was confused about it too, because, you know, it, what I was saying wasn't making any traction. And I had a lot of people telling me how the stories, you know, how stories should be made and the kinds of stories I should be telling. And you should be looking at this person and that person. And there weren't any people who were from my background to point to at that time. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I got to my fourth year, I was actually pretty convinced that filmmaking was not for me um, because I couldn't, I couldn't get any traction as far as people as far as being able to get any feedback from my teachers, from my peers and that kind of thing, until one of the professors in Africana Studies Department gave a class on African cinema. And I got to meet for the first time um, all of these African filmmakers that had been making films for decades and decades on the continent and in different languages and had, you know, screened all over the world. And I was just like, oh, this, I've just been talking to the wrong audience. Mm -hmm. I am. And it's just, you know, all this time people have been trying to tell me about like French New Wave and Italian yeah. blah, blah, blah cinema. And it's like, I mean, that's great, but that's not, that's not what I came to do. That's not what I had in mind. Um, and so that was a, a huge um, turning point for me was learning about African filmmakers, sort of like the history of African filmmakers, traveling to South Africa for the first time and meeting people my age who were also in film school, who were studying to make images that made sense to their environment and to their upbringing. And it kind of sort of set my path as to like what it is that I wanted to do with my career. Where did and how did film factor into your life? Why did you want to be a filmmaker? I mean, as I mentioned, my father was an artist we, I grew up in a very art friendly house. Um, when I was, when my mom was pregnant with me, they, my dad was very fascinated by um, psychics at that point. And they visited a psych, Sylvia Brown, and she told them I was going to be a dancer or some sort of famous artist, but she mentioned a dancer. So when I was born, I was like in dance classes from the get go and I was going to be a dancer. And then they would tell me the story, all the Sylvia Brown says, you're going to be a dancer. Um, and so I danced a lot, which is great. I love dancing still. And then at one point I thought I'd be a writer because I really loved books and reading and that kind of thing. I grew up at a time where in Kenya, there was no local content other than the news um, and a few maybe slapstick comedy type shows on TV. There really wasn't any local content to be like, I never grew up watching any African films. I never grew up watching any African shows. Even you know, in Africa. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there was the Cosby show every so often. Ugh, yeah. So everything was imported, more <laughs> or less. Everything was imported. Wow. Everything was imported. And so it's just, it's a really, it's a kind of hard to explain the experience of growing up and never seeing yourself reflected anywhere. You know, like understanding or seeing life and what you're supposed to, you know, how you're supposed to date and have relationships and feel about people and interact with your parents and through somebody else's lens and somebody else's culture and someone else's language even. Um, and I just, and they were also really 
trashy movies. I mean, they weren't even like high quality stuff. It was, there's movies that are made. I'd love at one point to figure out who makes these things because nobody in the U.S. actually sees these movies. I think they are actually made for export to non-English speaking countries. But they're the kinds of films where there's a lot of sort of like action Rambo type stuff where like the people fall and then you hear the bullets. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Delayed reactions there. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I grew up with a lot of that and I hated it. I just hated it. And I'd complain endlessly. And so I kind of decided to be a filmmaker on a dare um, is what happened. My father was done with me complaining and was just like, we'll make your own damn movies. And I was like, fine, I will. But I didn't know what that meant. So I just kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm going to make my own movies without any concept of what that actually entailed until I got to film school. And I was like, oh, this is like construction work, man. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting. I am involved with a local film festival and we recently had our festival and the opening night film, which I was fortunate enough to moderate the talk back was Black Orpheus, which mm-hmm. was made in 1959, which uh, takes place in Brazil on the eve of carnival and then the day of carnival. And it was very, you know, maybe not so controversial when it was first came out, but um, the thing about the film is it allowed black girls and boys and men and women to see themselves on screen for the first time. So it was clearly seminal in that reason, uh, for that reason. However, it was made by a Frenchman in spite Mm -hmm. of the fact that it was an Afro-Brazilian cast it introduced the world to Bossa Nova, Jobim, but that Bossa Nova music was not played in the favelas where the poorer people lived. So yeah. it's just so ironic that you're talking about this. And also when The Wiz was made with Diana Ross, which is also yeah. the first time. So there was a, a very interesting dynamic here. On the one mm-hmm. hand, there might be a stereotyping, but on the other hand, you're seeing yourself on the screen. Yeah. I mean, I've seen Black Orpheus, a beautiful film, and it's it's impactful. It's like it's like that's me. That's like I even if they don't exactly speak your language and it's not exactly right, there's things that just it's very hard to understand it if you've never had that experience. You know, yes. most Americans are used to seeing aspects of their culture at least on TV. Certainly language, certainly music, certainly those kinds of things. America's a huge exporter of those things to everybody else. But um when it's the first time, it oof, there's just something that's really magical about that. So, yeah. Oh, I can Absolutely. certainly understand how that just resonates with, with people. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about Farewell Amour. I had no preconceived idea, feeling about this film. I just sat down and really, I was riveted by this mm-hmm. film and this story. So... I I saw it. You made it. Why don't you tell everybody what it's about? I just gave a bit of a clue or a hint. So it's a story about a family that is reunited after 17 years of separation due to visa immigration issues. And we follow them on their journey as they're getting reacquainted, not only to one another, but to themselves um, and using the tool of dance as a way to rediscover one another in their tiny Brooklyn apartment. Did that idea just come to you? And before you answer that, I also meant to ask, 
where, <laughs> forgive the way I'm phrasing it, where did you get off thinking you could make a feature? <laughs> Who made you think that? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, uh, what kind of support did you have? I had a lot of support, thankfully, um, that I've been able to build over the years. But for the feature in particular, I had my producing partner, um, Haria Mohammed, who's a wonderful and talented woman. Um, she actually got the producing award at Sundance this year. And um, she and I had been working, we've been friends for at least 15 years, and we've been working together as you know director-producer team for about five or six years. And I told her about the story a while back as just kind of like, you know, I have this story that I'm kind of working on. She's like, that's really great. We decided to work on a prequel, a short prequel to the film, to the feature film Farewell Amore, and used the prequel short film to garner more support. So while we were working, while we were developing the script, um, you know, we had our budget, we had our, you know, different elements together, a synopsis, a treatment of the story and the short film so people could see what our work was. Um, and we got into a number of the, we got into the Sundance feature filmmaking program. We got into the Tribeca Film Institute and IFP and Cine Quanon, which is a screenwriting program in Mexico. Um, and all of these, you know, were sort of stepping stones. We garnered a few um, grants from the Jerome Foundation and NISCA and NIFA and, you know, all of those kinds of things together, you know, kind of got us to the point where we were able to get investors to, mm -hmm. you know, invest equity in the film and, and get it done. And, you know, not to say that it was smooth or easy because it wasn't, but we did, we were very lucky and, you know, prayerful <laughs> and we managed to attract a really, really wonderful team of investor producers who are, you know, 100% with us in terms of making all the decisions around our marketing materials, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's, that helped in terms of... So I it mean, wasn't been, really an awful uphill slog. I mean, you had street cred. It wasn't that, you know, all of a sudden, hey, I think I'm going to make a feature film with no professional background. Right. I mean, I had made uh, several shorts. I had done a, some TV series before that and web series. So I... I have worked with actors. I've worked with crews before, mm -hmm. you know, for quite a while and had been, you know, sort of gaining industry support here and there as well. But, you know, your first feature is always your first feature. Um, and there's a lot of proving to people that you can, yeah. do, that you can do. It mm -hmm. really helped that my producing partner and I had worked together before. And so our dynamic was very, you know, helpful in terms of convincing people that we could pull this off. And, you know, it's an ambitious script, too. It's an ambitious story. And it's also a story that most people have never heard of before. Right, so right. Similar to my film school experience where people are like, who? <laughs> who are these people? What's happening here? And then you want them to do what now? Um, you know, and it was, but I, I did, I managed to find people who just believed in us and loved us and loved our project. And so came with us on the journey, regardless of what questions or concerns they might have had, they did believe us that we could pull this thing off. And we did, which was incredible. Well, you did. And how? But this film is also, the story is also personal, isn't it? 
It is. It is a personal story. It's inspired by the, a relationship of my aunt and uncle. One of my aunts and uncles, I have several. Um, but one of my aunts and uncles who were married in the mid-90s in Tanzania, my uncle got a student visa to come to the U.S., came with every intention of bringing my aunt. And their, at that point, their son was five months old, you know, right behind him. And till today have been stuck in endless visa applications and rejections and applications and rejections um, and are still hopeful that one day they'll be able to reunite. They've met, oh, they haven't seen each other since the mid-90s. Oh my God, is that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and it's been, it's been this thing in the family, like we're all aware of what's happened and, you know, people have different thoughts and feelings about whether they should still be married and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But mm. I've, I've seen it more importantly, I've, you know, cause I was there at their wedding as like a 11 or 12 year old. And I've seen over the years how it's changed them as individuals, how it's changed their family unit and, the kinds of people that they've had to turn into in order to stay hopeful that they will one day be able to reunite. And so, you know, it, it became the what if story. Well, what if auntie finally got her visa and that was no longer the issue and she was able to come with my cousin? Mm. What happens then? Where do they start? How, you know, and, and I had this I image in my mind for the longest of my uncle you know, so auntie has her visa, she's showing up, my uncle's at the airport and he's standing at the gate. And what is he thinking? You know, is he going to recognize them? What's he going to say? What, what are the, what, where is he going to take them for sightseeing? What's he going to make them for dinner? You know, like, yeah, how, do you, yeah, yeah. how do you reintroduce yourself to an intimate partner? Who is clearly a stranger now. Yeah. Stranger. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then all of the expectations too, auntie and cousin who are coming, you know, they've been dreaming and longing mm. for this place forever. And, you know, all of the stories that they've built in their mind about what their lives are going to be like now that they're finally together and, you know, God has answered their prayers. What does that even look like? And, you know, is, is, is America going to meet their expectations? Cause of course, at this point it's been built up so much. Um, and, you know, is this, is this country better than where they came from? Right. And is the situation better than they came from, than where they came from? Is it better for them to be together? Like, is that actually a good thing or should they have just stayed? You know, like these are all really tough questions to answer. And of course, very individual. Um, but I just, that was what I was playing with. That's what I wanted to kind of explore with these characters. Yes. And, and the interesting dynamic for me was on the one hand, the character's name, the dad and husband is Walter, the daughter mm -hmm. is Sylvia, and the mom is Esther. And there you are walking a mile. I'm talking about me, walking a mile mm -hmm. in each one of their shoes. You get it, even though you never experienced it. Yeah. I think there was also something about, something that I thought was so interesting about all of them are experiencing this one event, you know, and the event is supposed to be like, yay, we made it. We're This reunion. Yeah. yeah. The end, you know, yeah, right. the end of our struggle, everything's going to be wonderful now, right? <laughs> and, you know, so this is the event of their reunion, but every single one of them is experiencing the reunion in a very unique way. You know, there is no one experience of how they're each, because they're all of them are now very individual people. 
and have had to develop certain crutches in order to get here and are now here and realizing that these crutches are no longer working in this new situation. And so now what do I do? I have to get rid of this crutch, but this is my crutch. I, I feel better with the crutch. I can't get rid of my crutch, you know? So yeah, it was, it was a really fun and interesting experience trying to write in their shoes. So did, that did it just flow from you? Was it, was, was it an easy script to write? It was an easy script to write as far as being the characters. It was difficult because of the acrobatics of it. You know, it, it's a, th- it's a triptych. Where do we overlap and, you know, what am I seeing versus what you're seeing in this moment at the table or at the market or at the, wherever we are, you know, and just keeping track of when things happen, when, and, and how does it explode and then resolve. Um, so the formatting of it, I think was probably the most difficult, but in terms of being able to hear their voices, I felt that I was able to do that pretty well, and I quite enjoyed it. Um, I mean... You mean the means to the end you enjoyed? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and being Mm -hmm. able to sort of express from the perspective of Walter, from the perspective of Sylvia, from the perspective of Esther, and like really trying to think about how would Esther feel in this moment? Like what, you know, what would this mean to her? And how would she take it? And how would Sylvia take that, you know, and sort of really living in those shoes. So yeah, that, that, that really worked. I didn't expect the film to go there. Yeah, I uh, feel like I've come to praise Caesar here. I really, I really, really, not even I like the film. I found the film to be incredibly impactful and a real eye opener for me, even though I feel like I've been around the block. What a high to have gotten all the accolades. It was a high and it was also a little bit confusing. And <laughs> to stressful too? Um, not, not as much stressful. I will just say confusing because I had come to a point where I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't, you know, like I said, a lot of my years coming up has been, I don't quite understand what you're doing. These aren't the people that I've heard of or I've imagined or that are shown on the news or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And so... I'm skeptical of what you're saying to me and what you're showing to me. So to have like the complete 360, you know, experience of people like I completely understand what you're saying to me. And I, not only do I understand it, but I accept it and I love it. And I'm so moved and I'm in tears right now. And I was just like, really? (laughs) You are? (laughs) Uh Uh Not what I was, you know, it was, I mean, it was beautiful. It was a wonderful experience to get that kind of feedback, but I wasn't expecting it going in. Um, and so it did take me a little while to sort of like, are those real tears or are you just being really polite? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need to savor it. Yeah. I need you to explain what this is like to be back and forth. Mm-hmm. Is it still not jarring? It is, but it's also recharging for me. Like I do... I get so much inspiration from both, you know, and I, I, I have people and I have lives that I've built in both places. And so it feeds me. It feeds me creatively. It feeds me spiritually. Um, and it feeds me creatively as well in both ways. You know, there's the ways in which I see things that 
bother me or irritate me or, oh God, that thing again, or, oh, that relative again or whatever, but also kind of intrigues me where, you know, somehow, because I've always been on the outside in, you know, like I grew up in Kenya and my parents have a home here, but our ancestral home is in Tanzania. So I always grew up as an outsider in Kenya to some degree. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though I speak the language and I went to school here and everything right, else. Right, right, right. This is actually my home in a, in every sort of sense of the word. And then in the U.S., I've always kind of been an outsider because I didn't grow up in the U.S. And so people will assume that I did because of how I sound and Speaking, I yeah. mm-hmm. there and everything. But then there's certain things they're like, remember the blah, blah, blah show? And I'm like, no, I, mm. no, I don't. I never watched that. I wasn't here for that, you know. And so I've, and so therefore it puts me in a position where I have to observe a lot. I have to observe my surroundings all the time. I have to learn people's, you know, how they speak. And, you know, there's a way in which you have to observe in order to stay safe when you're an outsider and when you're an immigrant, because mm-hmm. things could change at any moment and you you don't want to be on the wrong side of things. It's called code switching. And I think that there's a level of code switching for everybody in some ways, certainly people of color. I know a lot of African-American people talk about code switching, especially, for example, when they go to school, like higher education, you know, where you might come from a certain neighborhood, but then, you know, you're in Harvard or something and you have to speak as, you know, your diction has to be a certain way or Mm -hmm. the kinds of activities that your friends and your frat mates and things like that are doing is very different from what you would do at home with your relatives and your cousins. And you sort of have to be fluent in both of those things, you know, in order to, to live in both of those worlds. And then you get a job, maybe a professional job on I don't know, Wall Street or something like that. And there's a language in a way and a, a mannerism there that might be different from where you live and the people that you're Did around. Did you feel that you had to always educate and enlighten I've been asked to do that a lot. I feel less obliged to do that as I've matured Mm -hmm. in my life. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, I feel less inclined to do that. And also people, the people that I'm around um, and thanks to social media, Instagram, whatever, um, are a little bit more informed than they were when I was a teenager, thankfully. Mm-hmm. So people can discern differences between certain things or do already know certain authors or artists or, you know, different cultural things that they can sort of, you know, it's not as much, it's not as much um, education that I have to do anymore, which is great. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not pushing that rock up the hill. No, no, mm-hmm. not quite in the same way. Although I will say still for Eastern Africa in general, there isn't as much, you know, I mean, we learn so much through images as a people, as a society. So much of the information that we take in is through images that we see, sounds and images that we see and hear, right? Which for most brown and black people is through the news, um, which can be biased, of course. And so if you're only learning about Africa through the news, that means you're only learning about tragedies and problems, right? (laughs) Right. Bad Um, news. (laughs) Right. And then maybe you'll see certain celebrities or certain things or 
uh, that associate with other things. With East Africa, most people, foreigners who've come here have come for the reason of safaris. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so the things that people remember seeing and hearing about East Africa, for the most part, is landscapes and animals. <laughs> and not as much about people and stories and specifics and languages and what it sounds like and the difference between your language and this other language. And, you know, so you know, as opposed to West Africa, where, you know, people know certain foods or certain dances or cultural clothing and, you know, names and things like that. And so people have a little bit more of a, like, if I say to you, you know, Dakar or Nigeria or, you know, something like that. People have some images right. that can come Have up. a reference. I, yes, they know where, you, where you're talking about. Exactly. Even mm -hmm. with South Africa, I guess, because we saw so many images during apartheid Day. Yes. Mm -hmm. with Mandela, et cetera, there's certain images, Oprah's school, whatever it is, right. like the right. image that will come up. But for East Africa, the images tend to be animals and, and savannas. Um, mm. And that is problematic because there's a lot of people that live here. And there's actually a lot of films that have been shot in East Africa, probably more than anywhere else on the continent, certainly like Hollywood films. But again, it's always been used for the landscape and for the animals. So it's mostly Hollywood stories tend to be in East Africa, tend to be white people finding themselves against the backdrop of the savannah or mm. saving some child soldier, some child bride, some FGM victim, you know, whatever it is, and not about the people that actually live there. So, yeah, so that's something that in terms of explaining, I think there still is room, not only in terms of explaining to foreign people, to non-East African people, but actually to explain for ourselves. Because as I mentioned in the beginning, the impact of never seeing yourself, never seeing your culture, never hearing your language, never seeing any of your rituals, your clothing, any of those things. Your richness. Yeah, like never understanding your own culture through your own lens is actually quite devastating and problematic. Um, and it shows in terms of how people, you know, people, there's a lot of confusion around like, well, how do we have relationships and how do we raise yeah, our kids? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, you know, because a lot of our cultures have also been interrupted due to colonialism. Yes. So there has been several decades of us being told what to do and us being told who we are, you know, externally. And, you know, in our books and in our education system, this is who you are. This is why you're important. This is what you people do. This is what you're good at. This is what you're not. And so being able to define those things for ourselves in order to show ourselves and make, for, make up our own minds as to if that's true or not, if that's what we want to do or not, does this cultural practice actually make sense or not? Um, those are conversations that I want us to have more and more of and I think is really important just for African people, let alone educating anybody else. Do you see this in a way <clears throat> as your mission? I do. Hmm. I do. I mean, that's kind of why I became a filmmaker in the first place, right? That was my initial irritation was like, ah, oh, I want to, you know, there's like, I grew up with such just hilarious, dramatic 
people, like my family alone are just like so colorful. And I never got to see that anywhere. And it was just like, but why, you know, I know so many of these people, why do we only just see tragedy? Um, And not to say that therefore all of my films are just going to be about like high-fiving each other. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, even within tragedy, we still love and live and make decisions and have families and do other things. So we're not just stuck on the one switch. Um, so it is a little bit of my personal mission. It's something that I enjoy. You know, it's, I don't see it as like, all right, I need to get up and tell people who we are now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, it's something that I actually really, cause I just, I love, I love what our cultures are and who our people, my people are. So it's a, it's a great joy of mine. How do you divide your time? Are you six months there, six months here, or it's just uh, whichever way the crow flies? Yeah, it hasn't been the most planned out because it depends on money. Life gets in the way, correct? If I'm teaching and if I'm not, if I have a project, if I'm not. So I initially had planned to be here for three weeks to visit my mom and then COVID happened and I ended up being here for the year. What irons are in your fire? separate from Farewell more, You know, it's been a very, as we all know, it's been a very unique year. And so even in terms of being able to enjoy the release of the film via festivals and then, you know, our release with IFC, everything is online. So it's been a very different kind of interaction. I mean, thankfully, we did have our initial premiere at Sundance. So we were able to release in front of a live audience, which is amazing. Um, and certainly I'm so grateful because not everyone has had th- that opportunity to do so. So, yeah, I've, I mean, I've loved it, but it's also been a little bit isolating because it's all via Instagram direct messages. And yeah, it's, that's you know, just sucks. Like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very, it's a very different experience. You can't right. really sit in the audience and feel people breathing and gasping and, you know, all of those kinds of things. But at least you don't have somebody getting up to go to the bathroom. I mean, you got to look who else, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) It's true too. Cause you know, they can never see you giving them their their dirty look in the dark theater. (laughs) You know, so we're all kind of like learning new normals, normals right now in terms of what that's like. But it has been a wonderful experience. And even in, you know, like the interviews that I've done with my cast or, you know, some of my crew members here and there has also been really great in terms of, you know, being able to reflect on what the experience of making the film together was and sort of, you know, from my perspective and from their perspectives, et cetera. Um, in terms of my next project, I do have some some things in the work. I can't quite talk about them yet. Okay, okay. Um, I respect that. It hasn't been the kind of year that I have been able to do much, if any, of any writing. Um, I just haven't had the brain space to Mm. do that. It's kind of been taken by a lot of politics, (laughs) COVID-related things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So I am working on, I have two projects that I'm kind of working on right now or sort of in the fire, in motion, um, one has a writer attached uh, already, so I'm working with a writer, um, and that's a project that we're hoping to maybe go into pre-production 
COVID dependent, inshallah, go into pre-production in January or at the top of the year. Um, but it would be something that I would just be directing. I would be director for hire and um, somebody else is writing. But a historical project that is is a much larger project than anything that I've worked on before. So it's quite exciting. And also just realizing that, you know, regardless of the scope and the producers and whoever is attached, um, that it all kind of comes down to the same elements in terms of just like, really understanding the character and putting myself, at least for me, my, my method is like really putting my, trying to put myself in that character's shoes and trying to understand how, how they're feeling so that I can help to guide and help to, you know, figure out all the other elements, what they're going to be wearing, how they're going to say things, what kind of music we might be using, you know, what kind of ambience and mood, what kind of locations are we looking for, et cetera. It kind of comes down to all of those really specific things. And even though this project um, is dealing with African-American characters, which is also a wonderful um, newness for me, I've never told stories about African-American people before, I think it has a lot of the same elements that I, I feel very strongly about when dealing with African characters, which is that we're not one lump of brown skinned people. Like right. people have very specific histories, very specific ways of speech, very specific, you know, histories that tie to what they eat and how they dress and, you know, all of these different things that I think are very important. They're all individuals. They're all unique. And and I, that definitely comes across in, in Farewell Amour. For the longest time, African films that have been made with American money have always had to have attached some African-American star, you know, name star that's going to sell the movie and be the sort of like the marketing franchise behind it or whatever. And people have just kind of like lumped, just like, you know, just gather some brown people, put on some colorful clothing. Great, you know. And you never see that, you know, like if you, if I were, if I were to propose to anybody to do a film about Lincoln and your actor had like a Swiss accent, you know, like (laughs) be laughed out of the stadium Uh or uh even if it wasn't like someone as monumental as Lincoln, but a film about a family that's in Boston and everyone shows up with like a California Valley accent or, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, I got gotcha. you think I wouldn't know what I was doing. Like I, I wouldn't be able to get a job again, mm. but they do that all the time for African, African content. You yeah. know, where it's just like, yeah, nobody will know the difference. It's like, no, people are going to know the difference mm. Mm. and they should know the difference. The problem is that we don't ever pay attention to it, but there actually is a difference. So we should pay attention to that. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> it's so, it's so simple. Yeah. And true, but it just gets so marginalized. It does. It does. It is what it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. And people are just kind of like, yeah, yeah. And as you just said about Black or Fail, um, if you have like a French director who's just thinking about the art, you know, and he's maybe not as in tune with or hasn't done his research on who those people are and what those people might listen to and like what the culture is, what they might be wearing or, you know, like... It's a beautiful film, but for those people there, I'm sure there's a lot of things that are missing and I would never want that to happen. And so for me, right now, I'm sort of in a research mode in terms of like 
really sort of trying to delve into details and talking to people and asking a lot of questions so that I can get those things right, because I think they're important. Wow, Equa, what a great way to end. Although, as far as I'm concerned, we could go on for much, much, much longer. I found you engaging and fascinating. I loved hearing your story. And as I gushed early on, I really loved the film. And so here's what I propose to you when your new projects come along and you want to share. would love to have you back. It would be nothing short of my pleasure. Oh, I would love that. Thank you so much, Sandy. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's a mutual admiration society here going on. Much more continued success and joy in your life. And uh, (laughs) when you come back to New York City, give a holler. I will. (laughs) Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Sandy Klein.